At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There's no one that's immune to this. Um, And any person, even a person with no substance use ever in their family and no mental health problems and every resource available could suffer from addiction. That's Dr. Abigail Heron. She's a psychiatrist who works with addiction patients at the Institute of Family Health in Manhattan. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Heron and Susan Salamone, a family advocate who lost one of her sons to the opioid crisis. On the show today, we talk about the things that are misunderstood about opioids and the toll it's taking on America. It's a tough conversation, but a really important one. Before I get to your questions, I have some really exciting news. On April 26th, I will be recording our second ever live episode of Stay Tuned at the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem. My guest will be Basim Yusuf a world-renowned comedian known as the John Stewart of the Arab world. He is an amazing person. He hosted an extremely popular comedy show in Egypt before he was arrested for his satire and basically forced out of the country. Bassem is the subject of a recent documentary called Tickling Giants and is currently performing a one-man show across America and Europe. He's funny, he's smart, and you're going to love him. The last show sold out super fast, so get your tickets for April 26th at the Apollo through Ticketmaster or ApolloTheater.com slash calendar. Really hoping to see you there. All right, now let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Michael Steinberg from Delray Beach, Florida. Um, With the recent headlines about Trump shuffling his legal team and with some lawyers uh, refusing to work for him, should we be concerned about the quality of his representation? I'm thinking of something that Rachel Maddow said a while back that we need his representation to be strong so that the process is trusted and, and all the rest of it. What are the exact dangers there, and how can we assess the strength of his legal team? I know he's got different legal teams on multiple legal fronts, so I guess maybe just focus on the team responding to the Mueller probe. Thanks. Uh, Michael, thanks for your question. It's a really good one. Let me just say right off the bat, we've been talking about this for a couple of episodes now. It is an extraordinary thing that the president of the United States of America, who also has independent wealth, is not able to retain, keep on, attract the top-level attorneys in the country. Ordinarily, it would be the highlight of any lawyer's career. You know, and if they're not already famous, it's a career-making move to represent the president in any capacity, much less in a sort of antagonistic fight with the renowned special counsel, Bob Mueller. And we've seen every week reports of people like Ted Olson and others who are legal superstars and they're considered legal superstars by the left and by the right, and they won't serve, in part, I guess, because they don't believe the president will take their advice, and in part also, I believe, because they feel like 
they don't know how they're going to be treated by the president, how long the retention will last, because Donald Trump seems to like musical chairs, not only among his personal lawyers, but among his staff at the White House and among cabinet officials as well. And the people who are in the best position to offer sage, good advice, and counsel the president already have reputations, already have careers, and they value them, and they don't want them to be sullied because they see the track record of how this president treats people. I'll say the same thing that I've seen some lawyers say on television. When I was a U.S. attorney and when I was a line prosecutor, I actually liked my adversaries to be good lawyers as well. It's better for the process. It's more fair for the process. Not only that, if you had good lawyers who had integrity and whose word you trusted on the other side, you knew what you were getting into and you knew that the quality of the argument would be at a high level and it would be you know, a gratifying experience. And if you had a lawyer who didn't know what he or she was doing, that was often more work for you. Because as the prosecutor in the case, you have to make sure that the record is clear and that the judge is aware of all the relevant law, whether or not the defense has brought it up or not. Prosecutors are not supposed to be pulling fast ones just because the lawyer on the other side is a fool or unprepared. So in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's probably true, though it's counterintuitive, that people on the Mueller side want to be dealing across the table with lawyers who are professional, smart, experienced, and understand how federal court works, understand how the grand jury works, and understand how the Department of Justice works. From time to time, just from my experience, you'd have a defendant that you were going to trial against, and they would pick uh, you know, a corporate lawyer. It was very rare, but it sometimes happened. Or someone who was a civil litigator, and it just made life kind of miserable. The most important stakeholder in this is the president himself. And to the extent he has bad lawyers, even a layperson will understand this, he's more likely to get himself into trouble. So when he's sitting in his office and de- debating and deliberating over the question of whether he should sit down for an interview with Bob Mueller, I don't know what he knows. I don't know what he's done. I don't know exactly what the Mueller team is going to be asking about, although p- reportedly they have given some topics to the president and the White House. But when you're having that discussion and you're debating the pros and cons of deciding not to speak to them and risking the possibility of getting a subpoena as a sitting president, you want to make sure that the lawyer who's advising you is smart, experienced, seasoned, and can give you the best advice and the best representation of both the pros and the cons. And if you don't have that, you can march yourself into a, you know, a snafu and a very bad situation sitting across the table from those folks. That's just one example. I'll give you another example that's getting a lot of attention these days outside of the context of the Mueller investigation, and that's the whole business with Stormy Daniels. And on that score, the president is absolutely being outlawed. Here's an email question from Ellie in Chicago, who writes, Hello, Preet. I realize that John Bolton does not need to go through a Senate confirmation process for his new position in the Trump administration, but will he need the highest level of security clearance in order to do his job? And will his prior contacts at Cambridge Analytica be a hurdle to full clearance? Uh, Thanks for your question. So the position that you're referring to is John Bolton coming in as national security advisor, which would make him the third national security advisor in, I think, 14 or 15 months, which is fairly unheard of. Will he need the highest level of security clearance? Yes. That position is highly sensitive, incredibly important, deals with securing the homeland, keeping the country safe from all manner of threat. You literally have to brief the president on a daily basis. And so the person in that position needs to be able to have access to, so he can analyze every single bit of intelligence that is available to keep us safe. As for whether or not his prior contacts at Cambridge Analytica 
will be a hurdle. I don't know the full details. I don't know if the full details of his connections there are known. Obviously, when people are going through the process of determining a security clearance, all past associations and the nature of the people with whom you've associated and the institutions with whom you've associated become relevant. And if there's some funny business that went on and there's some reporting that there has been with Cambridge Analytica, that certainly will play a factor, but time will tell. Hi, Preet. This is Jerry from Brooklyn. If Robert Mueller is fired, what happens to all the evidence that the investigation has gathered so far? And what happens to the indictments of Manafort, Flynn, Papadopoulos, or anyone else under investigation? Who then takes control of all the information that's been gathered so far? Thanks, and love your show. Jerry, that's an excellent question, and one about which many people have been speculating. First, I hope Bob Mueller is not fired directly or indirectly. Second, I hope that if he is, that Congress will immediately pass some legislation that allows Bob Mueller to continue his work under the auspices of a statute that Congress, in a bipartisan way, passes. But third, I don't know of anything that prevents an enterprising, independent United States attorney from seeking that information that's been collected and pursuing a case. Now, the odds of that happening, I think, are a long shot. I think we're all worried about the possibility that Bob Mueller's investigation is shut down in some way. With respect to the pending indictments against Paul Manafort and so many others, it's a great question as to what happens. You know, a grand jury was convened and a grand jury handed down the indictments. The indictments are drafted by the prosecutor's office, but they are authorized by the grand jury and then endorsed by the court, which are both independent of the prosecutor. So it's a little bit uncharted territory. I mean, we brought indictments all the time and you have personnel changes. So obviously when I left the office, every indictment continued. If someone decided to shut down the entire Southern District of New York, I guess that we would have something of an existential crisis and a lot of happy defendants. But I've never sort of faced the prospect of an entire you know, prosecutorial agency being shut down. I think it would be a miscarriage of justice for those cases not to proceed, given that process had been followed and a grand jury had been convened and ruled and that a court uh, had set a trial date. You know, I've got to think about that a little bit more. It's not something we've ever seen before. My guests this week are Dr. Abigail Heron and Susan Salomon. So this episode is a little bit different. We're touching on an incredibly difficult topic, the opioid crisis, arguably the biggest public health crisis in America right now. People are dying every day in unbelievable numbers. And I thought it was important not just to talk about the law enforcement response to it, which some people have been discussing, and that's important, but here really get down to basics. We talk about what opioids are. We talk about what addiction means. We talk about how to reduce the stigma of the disease of addiction. We talk about how families should discuss the issue among themselves and what treatments might exist. I have to say, this is going to be a very difficult conversation, but it's an incredibly vital one. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Susan Salomon, Dr. Heron, thank you for being with us today. This is, uh, you know, a tough topic, and it's an important one, the opioid epidemic in the country. And I think it makes sense to have an extended conversation about it, not necessarily from the law enforcement perspective, which we can do another time, but to hear the human stories of loss and pain 
involving this issue, and also talk about treatment and the medical component and the public safety and public health aspects of it. So I couldn't be more pleased to have the two of you here. So you folks and I, when I was the United States Attorney, together did some town halls on opioids and the crisis. Those were very important forums. And I thought, well, it makes a lot of sense since I don't have that job anymore. We can still talk about these issues and still educate the public about them and parents in particular by virtue of the podcast. For the listeners, I want to give a sense of what some people are going through. And like I did at our town hall, I want to play a 911 call placed by the mother of a child who was addicted to opioids. And she found him after he had overdosed. So for those of you who are listening, I have to warn you, it's really difficult to listen to. It's only 90 seconds. It's a tough 90 seconds. 911. I need an ambulance. My son's not breathing. What's the address? 1731. Yes, hurry. Is he blue? He's white. How old is he? Oh, God, he's dead. Ma'am, I need you to calm down. How old is he? Ma'am? Ma'am, I need you to calm down. How old is he? Pick up on that. Star police. How old is he? Hello? Hello? How old, how old is he? He's 20 years old. Get somebody over here. Okay, then is he breathing? No. They're already on the way. They've already been dispatched. Okay, thank you. Has he taken anything? Uh, we don't know. He, he has in the past. Okay. <laughs> On the line anymore, sir. Okay, yeah, hold on just a second, okay? Okay. Said so he's 20 years old? Yes. Okay. What's his name? Pardon me? What's his name? Brian Fence, F E N T Z. Okay, we're on the way, okay? Thank you, sir. Uh huh. Uh, Brian Fence died at age 20 of an overdose. And what you were hearing was his mother finding him. The reason I have that call and the reason I played it was not to exploit the tragedy of that family, but because the parents themselves gave that 911 recording to law enforcement some time ago and asked them to use it so their son may not have died in vain. So on that very sobering note, I want to start with Susan. Uh, you also lost a child. Yes. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Pre. Absolutely. Tell us about your experience, your son, what happened. Okay. We have uh, four children, four boys. Actually, Justin was my oldest son. Uh, he died of a heroin overdose on May 29th, 2012. But we had uh, lived with his addiction for 10 years. He did okay with uh, high school. He graduated, no problem. He went off to Marist College, and his drug use became uh, escalated. He really graduated to stronger drugs, and we didn't find any of that out until he reached out for help when he was about 24 years old. Uh, he was addicted to pills, OxyContin. And, uh, where, was he, where was he getting the OxyContin from? The street. He was getting them from the street, and because he was— um, he was a risk taker. He liked to feel different, uh, a little anxious, and 
So he used medication. He self-medicated. But I wouldn't say he had um, major mental health issues. So he was buying them from the street, and um, he got addicted, and he went away to a rehab for 28 days, actually. And um, when he came out, he learned how to shoot heroin there. He learned how to shoot heroin at the yes. clinic. Yes. So it's one of the, the downsides of going to rehab. Sometimes they learn stuff that they didn't know. They know they learn where to buy stuff and they learn different ways to get high. So he probably learned that heroin was cheaper than Oxycontin. Right. It is. And and it was a better high. So when he came out after twenty eight days, I think that night he was high, to tell you the truth. Around the dinner table. And what did you and your husband do then? Well, we were, see, the things we've learned over the last five and a half years are amazing, but we were at a loss. We really didn't know what to do. So we kicked him out and we kicked him out of our house. We asked him to leave the house that he couldn't live in our house anymore because he was obviously not committed to being clean. And at that time, we heard a lot of people tell us that they have to be ready to be clean in order to get clean. So he moved into an apartment. He continued to use, and we then became very frightened for him. And we went to his apartment when we couldn't reach him, and he was there. We brought him home, and uh, shortly after that, he went. He was using heroin. He went into a re- research study at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, and uh, the research study was for a medication called naltrexone. And he was in that program for six months, and he did very, very well with it. Uh, he had about six to eight months clean from that program, and he was on a shot called Vivitrol, which is a 30-day opiate block. I'm sure the doctor will talk about that. And uh, he was doing great. He had a great job, and uh, he was so proud of himself. In October of 2011, he started to slip which means that he started to use again. We didn't know at the time what he was using at that point. But again, we were at a loss as to what we do. What do we do now? So what did we do? We didn't do anything. We said, you have to stop using. He wouldn't stop using. So Had, had you thought about another clinic? No, we didn't think about... He wouldn't go to treatment. I, he wouldn't. You'd be surprised what they'll say to you. <laughs> like, I could teach that class. That's a very uh, common one that we hear because we work with par- with families now. So in October, he, he OD'd and he had uh, an anoxic brain injury. And that means there wasn't enough oxygen to the brain. At that time, in 2011, Narcan was not being uh, distributed to local citizens. It was only EMS, only fire departments, only police departments. Not even the police had it on them, actually. Uh, and the EMS came and they gave him the Narcan, which is an antidote to a, a opiate overdose, and it didn't work. So they took him to the hospital. They put him on a respirator. The next day, he started to come to. They took the respirator off, and we found out he had an anoxic brain injury, uh, which was uh, very, very severe. He couldn't write. He couldn't type. He couldn't play his guitar, which was really his favorite thing to do. It was his way of comforting himself. He would never be the same after that. He had a movement disorder as well, so he couldn't even hide it. Um, so he said he wanted to move into a group home, which was five minutes from my house. It was transitional living. 
So he moved in on uh, May 15th, and he died of an opiate overdose, heroin overdose, on May 29th. How did you find out about that? The police called my husband and said, we found your son. Uh, he died in the place he was at. My husband called me. I was a teacher then. I was teaching in the Bronx. And he said, your sister is coming up to see you. She works in the school also. And I just knew for him to send my sister up to get me. So um, he did die uh, there. And I know that he couldn't have shot up himself <laughs> because he had a movement disorder. He couldn't have cooked it. There's no way he could have cooked it. Uh, so he had someone cook that and help him get high. Did you ever find out who that was? No. And we didn't even look. But you did decide to do something. I wrote an article called Saving Justin. It went into our local paper, the Mayapac News, and um, I got a call on June 14th. So that was 15 days after my son died. I, I can't even believe it when I think of the timing on this. And the call, the person who called me, he said, I buried my son this morning. I said, well, we really should get together. And his name was Lou Christensen, and his wife is Carol Christensen. And they came over, and they told us the story of their son, Eric, who was a narcotics police officer. He was a narcotics detective, and he got addicted to painkillers that were prescribed by a doctor for back pain. And he went to his mother. Carol always tells this story. He came to his mother, Carol, and said to her, Mom, I think I'm addicted to painkillers. And Carol said, how could you be addicted? They, you, they were prescribed by the doctor. You know, you're not addicted. Anyway, he was addicted, and he, he went to treatment in April, came out, started using again, and went back to treatment in June, came out, and died of a heroin overdose we started an organization called Drug Crisis in Our Backyard that night at our table. Our mission is to bring awareness of the rampant use of heroin and opiates in our community, to recognize this as a brain disease, to stop the stigma associated with it, to help families who are dealing with this in their homes right now, and to advocate for legislation that creates better transitional housing, for one thing, and easier access to treatment. That's our mission, and we have been on it for six years now. I know you have been, and it's, and it's very important work. You know, here's a sentence that you wrote in the article that you mentioned. You know, there are a lot of people who don't have resources and who don't have support groups, and people think that that's why they have their problems. But as you point out about your son, um, you wrote, he had everything he needed a job, a sponsor, a program, a therapist, a supportive family, and many clean friends, but he couldn't shake the addiction. What advice do you have for people, given all that you've learned and all that you've gone through, who are having this problem in their own families? Well, I'd say don't give up hope. I lost hope. And they feel it. When, when you lose hope as their parent, the person they really need emotional support from. When you lose hope, they lose hope. And I learned from watching my son try to get clean that if a parent thinks it's painful when their their child relapses, they have no idea how painful it is to the person it's 
himself or herself that is addicted. They feel so defeated. Their self-esteem is destroyed and they feel that they really cannot do this. And many of them can't do it. And there's a lot of suicides related to this that doesn't even come into the count when you start to look at the deaths surrounding opiate addiction and drug addiction. There are so many suicides that aren't even in that number. Yeah, the the number of of deaths are significantly underreported, everyone thinks. Let me bring in Dr. Heron. Doctor, thank you for being here as well. Thanks for having me. Could you explain to folks what your specialty is? I'm an addiction psychiatrist and an addiction medicine specialist. And, and why did you choose that line of work? Not what I thought I was going to do. I've always been interested in behavioral health. When I went into residency, I started doing research because I thought that seemed interesting to, to do research. And I found my people. Uh, I loved working with people with addiction. I liked all the different interfaces of medical and behavioral health and all the components that went together. How come? How come you like working with people with addiction? You know, I think that what people don't realize and what people always say to me when they hear what I do is, oh, it must be so hard. Um, and of course, there are parts about it that are hard, but there's also a tremendous capacity for change. And people can get better and can recover largely through their own behavioral choices, which is not something that's true in most other diseases. Right? A lot of other things we have, uh, cancer cells are growing or um, you know, your blood sugar is doing what it's doing and, and you're not capable of just doing something yourself and taking on action that can make you better. So, um, so an opioid addiction does not have to be terminal. No, it's chronic. And I think that's the part we don't think about enough, right, is that addiction is a chronic brain disease. And whether you are actively using or not, you still have the disease of addiction. But it doesn't mean you need to die of an opiate overdose. And there are many people who are alive for 30, 40, 50 years in recovery now. And those people are incredible success stories. So it, it doesn't have to end this way. Can we take a step back and, and go through some terms? Absolutely. And some of the medicine? Because... You know, we're bombarded with sound bites about the opioid crisis and people have stories of pain and we've heard some today. But I'm not sure that everyone appreciates what some of the th- these things mean. So first, most basically, what's an opioid? So an opioid is a group of medications uh, and illicit drugs. So it includes things like heroin, which is the most well-known illicit group. Uh, member of the group, and also things like prescription painkillers. Um, fentanyl, oxycodone, hydromorphone, so things you might get if you got... Percocet as well. Percocet's a brand name, but yeah, it's um, something you might get if you got a wisdom tooth taken out, if you had chronic back pain. What are some other brand names? Oxycontin, Dilaudid, um, are the sign of the most, some of the most popular, Roxyset. Um, so people also will use street names for things like Oxys, Roxys, um, that trade on that sort of brand name. They're all in the same family all in the same family, and to your brain, they all very quickly undergo a metabolism where they act the same way. We have opioid receptors in our brain. They're there for pain relief. We also have something called endorphins, which are natural opioids that help us when we have when we exercise or um, that are part of the pleasure center of the brain. These drugs and medicines all act on that part of the brain to produce pleasure and relieve pain. So can you describe the physiology of addiction? So not everyone gets addicted. No. Millions of these pills are prescribed, and we'll get to whether or not that's too many. But a lot of people take them. I took them briefly after I had a head injury. Some people get addicted. Some people don't. What's the difference? 
So addiction is a chronic brain disease, but it also has a behavioral component. And I think this is the part that's hard. So you can have the genetic makeup and the setup for addiction. And if you never have exposure to these drugs, then you don't ever know that you have the disease of addiction. And of course, lots of people can take them uh, even chronically for um, you know chronic pain and for other things, even for years without developing it. For some people, this use triggers something in their brain where they start seeking that pleasure over and over again. And at some point, it converts where it is not so much about pleasure seeking anymore and becomes more about relief of discomfort, relief of anxiety. Um, and the use, if you look at many people with longstanding opiate addiction, they're long past being high or enjoying it anymore. They're, they're using at this point to not be sick. Well, that's the frightening part of this, right? As Susan was pointing out. You know, a lot of people begin innocently and you go and you get back surgery or you have, you know, some other kind of operation and the doctor prescribes you as was thought appropriate, uh, some kind of opioid and you take it and the next thing you know, you're addicted. What is an overdose and what happens during an overdose? So one of the things I want to say about opioids that makes them so particularly problematic and why this epidemic is so time sensitive in a lot of ways compared to some other drugs is that opioids have the capacity to kill you from even a single use which is arguably not true for certain other drugs. It'd be very difficult to have a marijuana overdose for instance. So there's other problems for long-term marijuana use but not in the same way. Opioids among their good things like pain relief also shut down the respiratory drive so they actually tell your brain you don't need to breathe as much. And when you take high amounts of opioids, it can shut down the drive so much that you stop breathing. Uh, so people die of, from respiratory depression, lack of oxygen. That's what a typical opioid overdose is. Yes. An important thing to remember, though, is that that's not instantaneous. It's not what we see in the movies um, where somebody puts a needle in their arm and they're dead in 30 seconds. And what happened with Sue's son is it really illustrates the point. There is an opportunity in many cases to intervene medically during that time. Let's talk about one of those interventions because, Susan, you mentioned it. Yes. Uh, a more recent drug that is much talked about by elected officials and law enforcement agencies and first responders. Talk about what that is. Yeah. So an incredible advancement that we've had is a medication that existed, um, which is the brand name is Narcan um, or the generic name is Naloxone. It's an antidote. It reverses opioid poisoning and is used by first responders. But now in some states, including New York, can be used by lay people to reduce, you know, reduce the consequences and reverse an opioid overdose. So but how, at, at what point can Naloxone be used and, and when does it cease to be effective? So people have to still be alive. It won't reverse someone who's dead. So if someone has completely stopped breathing, if they've ceased brain function, if their heart's not working, naloxone's not going to reverse that unless you're in that first, you know, 30 seconds or so that that happened. But if someone's unconscious, breathing very shallowly, maybe has a weak pulse, uh, is unresponsive, there's an opportunity to be able to administer this medication and potentially reverse it and save their lives. What would happen if you administered naloxone to a healthy person? Absolutely nothing. I could give it to my two-year-old. It does nothing if you're not high on opioids. It's completely safe to take. I, I could give it to you right now and nothing would happen. I'll pass for now. <laughs> but, but I'll just sip my water. So should everyone have naloxone in their home? I think everyone should have naloxone in their home. Like, ep like EpiPen? Except even more because, you know, only, you're only going to use the EpiPen on somebody that has the allergy in their body. This could be on anyone that took an opioid, including an accidental overdose. So if a kid got into medication out of your medicine cabinet, naloxone could be life-saving. Is there any concern 
that people will assume more risk because they think there's this life-saving, reversible drug that they can take. I've heard that. I've heard that uh, complaint. If it saves a life, I mean, I, I think that the more people that have Narcan, the better, and people that say that really don't understand this disease, I, I think that, um, you know, it, it's a it's a life-saving medicine that should be used. And if it can save a life, then that's what it's being distributed for. You know, so the, for the people who are listening and they're thinking to themselves, do I know anyone who looks like they might have an opioid addiction, but they don't know for sure, what are the warning signs for them to look out for? People withdrawing, not doing activities that they used to do, giving up things that they enjoyed in order to spend time, you know, with drugs or getting drugs, depression, feeling withdrawn. Um, if they're missing spoons, that's a big one. <laughs> and very, very you're smiling, one. but it's... I looked in my, my drawer, my utensil drawer one day, and I said, where are all my spoons going? Okay, so that, and also rubber bands, if they see rubber bands around or any kind of Band-Aids. And one other thing, like if you, if you look in your wallet and you say, I thought I had a $20 bill there, when you're trusting, not trusting your judgment and you are, and you intuitively feel that something is wrong, there's probably something wrong. Yeah. What's different now than before? That's causing people to take more of these pills. Is there is there something going on in the culture, or is it just you know a multiplication of addiction in the normal course? We didn't used to have these medicines, so it used to be heroin was, and there was only a subset of people that would ever even know how to get heroin or interact with heroin, and that's only available in certain parts of the country. So it's right. it's hard in a rural area to get heroin. Although easier, based on my experience, much easier now in in, in rural areas in Vermont and other places, there's an influx of heroin now. Yes, for this so, reason, absolutely, right. but. Until these medications came to market and became so popular, there were very few choices and they weren't readily available until the late 90s, early 2000s, which is when you see the explosion. So the opioid epidemic, epidemic absolutely tracks along with opioid prescribing. Can I address that? Please. Okay. So in 1996, there was a patent on a particular opiate. And from 1996 to 2001, that company marketed to doctors in the total of $135 million to tell these doctors, all the doctors, that this drug was non-addictive and only 1% of the population would get addicted to it. That company in 2007 pleaded guilty to false advertising and was fined $634 million by New York State. However, the cat was already out of the bag, and the streets were flooded with these pills by then. Tell people which company that was. Purdue Pharma. So we know this epidemic was started because of money. What do you say to the people who rely on pain mitigation medications? They're in pain because they have cancer or some other difficult disease. How, how do you balance this issue of preventing the epidemic of overdoses and dealing with addiction on the one hand. And on the other hand, recognizing, which I presume you do recognize, that there is a good faith, legitimate, helpful aspect to these medications. Responsible opioid prescribing is something we now are talking a lot about, but it's a relatively recent development in medicine. Uh, and when I went to medical school, no one ever talked about this at all. That wasn't that long ago. Uh, no, so you, you hurt your leg and you went to the doctor and they gave you, you know, a million pills. 
Right. So one of the things to really do is look at prescription monitoring programs to see if people are going to multiple doctors, to check urine toxicologies, to make sure people are taking the thing you prescribe them and not diverting it and selling it for heroin instead, to limit quantity and not give someone a a month-long supply if you're doing a first course of medication. All of these things to get access to the medicines for the people who need them, but to not put this out there. The street value is enormously high. If you give someone more pills than they need, the temptation to then divert them or sell them is very strong. So what's your advice as a doctor to the average person who is incapable of knowing that they are more susceptible to addiction and has an operation and has pain, separate and apart from what the doctor prescribes? What is your advice to the average person who is in pain after a legitimate medical procedure? Should they just, you know, suck it up? No. And I think under-treating pain, especially in people who've had past addiction, is actually a a recipe for illicit use, right? So if people were previous heroin addicts and now they're afraid to get pain meds, uh, sometimes they'll go and seek illicit things. I think people have to be honest about why they're using it, what their pain level is. And they need to feel that they can tell their doctor what's going on without risk of being thrown out of the practice, of being cut off. So if you're starting to notice a problem, if you're starting to notice you took an extra one just because it helped you sleep or because you felt a little bit anxious or you're doing it other than the original indication, people need to stop right then and be responsible to say, something's going on here. Maybe I don't need this anymore. And share that with the doctor. And doctors need to ask about that. But if you're clear in in the beginning about the expectations, these are diseases where relapse is expected. And no one thinks that if you have diabetes and your sugar is high, that you should hide that from the doctor or not go back or not talk about it or that you're going to get thrown out of the practice because your sugar got high. And that's often not the case with addiction. So people are afraid to say they slipped. They're afraid to say they took a pill. Um, We don't talk about what will happen if there's a relapse. And so people avoid coming back. And I think if we talk about relapse as a part of this disease, then people aren't so unprepared for what happens when that does occur. The problem of, of stigma attaching to addiction is a tremendously significant one. How do we reduce the stigma? By keeping the conversation going. By having conversations like this often. We have doctors who, who ask their patients, is this medication appropriate for you? Instead of saying, I'm giving you this medication. How about, is it appropriate if you give the patient a chance to say, I don't think that's the right medication for me. That's how we're going to start to, to change the culture around this. This is a cultural problem. So we've talked a lot about prevention here, and I think prevention is tremendously important, but I don't want us to forget the you know hundreds of thousands of Americans that are already affected and will be affected about this by this, um, and to say that there are safe and effective treatments for opioids right now, and we actually have the best pharmacologic treatments for opioids of any drug of abuse. So I've heard you tick through them before. Okay, why don't you do that for us? So there's the, the, three... the, most, the most promising, and then also maybe what they cost. Sure, which access is a huge issue. So there are three main medications that are used for the treatment of opioid addiction. The one people know the most is methadone maintenance. We've had methadone maintenance in this country for decades now. It's only available in specially licensed methadone clinics or what we now call opioid treatment programs. So people have to go there to receive the medication and they actually take it right there in the clinic and then bring home the intervening doses until the next time they're back. That is still an opioid, and people are physically dependent on it. So you can't stop taking it. You have to keep taking methadone every day. You take it forever. 
not necessarily forever, but you would go through withdrawal if you stopped it. You need to take it daily. Uh, it's a replacement therapy, but it's a known dose. We know what's in it, and it prevents all sorts of mortality and other types of you know, morbidity that's associated with injection use. But there are access issues in part because of geography? There are absolutely. There are several types of access issues. So geographically, for sure, there are parts of the country where it's not practical. You could be hundreds or thousands of miles from an, a methadone clinic. There are also issues around insurance. So there are times when people are not able to obtain it because of prescription drug coverage. Although it is relatively inexpensive, it's been off patent for many years. Any downsides or limitations on methadone? So methadone is a full opioid. It acts to your brain the same way that heroin would. And it can be lethal and overdose if it was stockpiled or taken inappropriately. And so the second method? The second medication is the other, is the flip side. It's something called naltrexone. This is an antagonist. It blocks opioids. So if you take this, it keeps you from being able to get high from an opioid. So if I took naltrexone and then I took heroin on top of it, nothing would happen an inhibitor. It doesn't do anything else for your brain, though. So it doesn't give you back any of the pleasure or any of the relief of anxiety or any of the things that might be missing. So for many people, this can be a hard thing to stay on because you're not getting any of the sort of positive aspects that came with use. How long has that been around? It's been around for a while. It's been popular for the last five to 10 years and is available both as a pill you take every day, but a little bit more commonly now as an injectable that's once a month. Uh, The problem with that is it only works as long as you take it. So if you stop taking it the very next day, essentially, you could get high again. It's like like methadone in that regard. Yes, except it doesn't – there's no withdrawal because it's not an opioid. So you can just stop it and go back to using opioids. And so retention on that medicine is not good. A lot of people stop taking it. What's the cost of that? That's the injectable is very expensive. It costs around $1,000 for a single injection. It's not covered by all insurance plans and it varies state to state. But um, well, in New York, inje- there's pretty comprehensive coverage. One injection lasts how long? 30 days. Or sometimes less. Or sometimes as a little we've bit experienced. less. At the end. Right. <laughs> right. You can start to wear off a bit towards the yeah, end. Yeah. So some doctors now are giving the pill week three to week four, they give Naltrex on the pill so that the person doesn't use during that week when it's starting to wane. And the third method? The last is a medication called buprenorphine. That's been around in the United States since 2000. And access to it increased dramatically in 2016. Uh, You have to take a special course in order to be able to prescribe it. It used to be limited to only physicians. And Obama opened up legislation uh, in 2016 to allow nurse practitioners and physician assistants and also to allow doctors to treat more patients with this medication. And how is that different from naltrexone? This is a really interesting medication because it's in some ways sort of hovers in the middle between the two. It is an opioid, but it only acts on your brain part of the way. So it goes to that opioid receptor in the brain and it turns it on part of the way. So it relieves withdrawal symptoms. It helps to prevent craving, but it doesn't cause the same type of euphoria or side effects that something like methadone or any of the other illicit medications would. This is still a medicine, though, that would cause withdrawal if you stopped. And so you do still need to keep taking it or taper off of it in order to discontinue. So all three medications really require significant duration. Yeah, and I think with opioids in particular, but addiction in general, that is a huge part of what's missing, is that this is a chronic disease that requires ongoing treatment. The idea that someone could go to detox for a week or go to rehab for 28 days and then never have to do anything else for their disease is unrealistic. And so for the majority of people to be successful with opioids, 
and to be in long-term recovery, one of these medications is helpful. I don't know if you can answer this question, but if everyone who died in the last year, and it's thousands and thousands of people, more people than have died in car accidents and shootings combined, I think, by an order of magnitude. If every one of those people had the ability to get one of these three courses of medication, what would happen to the overdose rate, you think? I think it would go down tremendously. I think a lot of people have tried one of these and failed and didn't know there were other options available. They tried them for a time and had a, and had trouble, and then they were cut off from their supply. Methadone is inexpensive because it's been off patent for a long time, but the others are very expensive. So maybe they lost access or prescription drug coverage. Their doctor moved out of state. Something happened. Um, so a lot of people have not been given adequate trials with these medications. I wanted to talk about the physiology and I wanted to talk about the personal experiences. I guess we could talk about policy a little bit. How do we make sure that everyone who can benefit from medication because of their addiction to opioids gets it? I think one thing we also want to look at is who's doing this treatment. So I'm an addiction psychiatrist. If someone comes to me, they already have an awareness of a problem, right? They've, they've sought me out as an addiction specialist. But if you put this into primary care and you teach pediatricians about this and family doctors about this, you allow people to access care in a different model without having to seek out specialty care, and it increases access tremendously. Uh, so the Institute for Family Health, where I work, we do integrated care. If you're there for primary care and you also have opiate addiction, you can get it from your same doctor, from the same place that already takes your insurance from the same faces you already know. No one has to know that you're walking into a specialist's office. And I think that's one of the things we want to think about is who's doing this work and not just leaving it up to addiction specialists. Yeah, I think that's great. But why are we still thinking about it? Why, why haven't we done that? A lot of doctors aren't that excited about treating people with addiction. No, that's a, so big, there's it's a big problem. there's stigma on the medical side, too. It's a big problem. Um, doctors do not want to have them sitting in their waiting rooms. <laughs> And to be fair, there's a lack of training. So many people don't know, many people in the medical community don't know about all of these options, don't know how to do them, and haven't been necessarily given the tools and resources to feel comfortable. So one thing I try to talk to other doctors about is knowing that if you knew there were treatments available, would you feel more comfortable treating one of these people, that, you know, having them in your practice, if you knew there was something you could do to help. And many people do feel more empowered than if they understand that there's medications for this. Susan, how do you think about Looking backwards, your experience with your son and treatment. Families think that they're going to send their kids away to treatment or their young adult child away to treatment, and they're going to, when they come back, they'll be better. That's really what families think. I work with quite a few families. We have a, a family support group. Right, but what do you tell them is the truth? We don't tell, we first of all, we don't want to, you know, blow them away. <laughs> but in a family support group, you have the other families who tell their story and how this was not the first time around. This is not their first rotary, rodeo. <laughs> and um, so what do I think about treatment? I think treatment really needs to change. I think that, uh, at least for opiates, it needs to change. 28 days does not work. They need treatment that they're getting in a 28-day program, but then they need continued treatment just like you would for any other disease, monitoring afterwards. And we need transitional housing because people come out 
after a period of time, first of all, people are not getting 28 days, okay? They're getting 10 days, 12 days, 14 days. It's barely an interruption of their addiction, barely an interruption. And they come out now, they've been clean for, let's say, a detox and 10 days. They're clean for 16 days. They come out, they use, and they die. If they don't die, it's a revolving door. They're narcan and they're back in another treatment set- setting. So the insurance companies are not happy about paying all this money out for treatment. But in, when in reality, treatment is not working because it's not long enough. What do you think is the most important thing for states to do as a policy matter to change? In New York State in 2016, they instituted um, limited prescriptions on opiates. So their doctors are only allowed to prescribe seven days now without uh, having a face-to-face with the patient again. I think that that should be federal. That would help reduce the use, or at least the number of pills out there. So that's definitely one thing. Also, CME for doctors, like they instituted in New York State three hours. Continuing medical education. uh, Yes. Every three years, three hours. It's not enough. I mean, three hours every three years. That's an hour a year on addiction medicine. Better than it was before. Oh, that's right. What it used to be, zero. Zero. (laughs) I think that, you know, states should help to ensure access to these medications by by making sure their insurance companies are offering them and also look at adequate physician training to be able to prescribe these things. What can ordinary people do who care about this issue? Educate themselves. They need to get educated. They need to know what's happening with their kids. And the education needs to be at a very young age for for kids to understand what can happen. And that can be done in a very, you know, non-threatening way. So I began talking to you guys a couple of years ago. And remember, I remember thinking the problem has been getting worse and worse and worse every year over the last few. And when we walked in the studio today, before we started the show, we talked about how it's gotten even worse since then. Are you hopeful or pessimistic about the future? And where, where do you see this going in the future? And when might it level off and get better? I am still hopeful about it. I don't have a crystal ball for exactly what the timeline is. I do feel like over the last few years, this has become so much in the zeitgeist. You can't really go anywhere without someone talking about it or seeing an article. Um, And it didn't feel like that even a couple years ago. So I think we are starting to reach a critical mass where we can't ignore this problem anymore. But we have, you know, at least a generation of people that have addiction that we need to focus on treating before we can really think of prevention efforts making a huge difference. Uh, I think that it is going to get worse before it gets better. There are drugs on the street now that are killing people like that, fentanyl, synthetic opiate. And it's, yeah, we, it, had so much, we didn't even talk about fentanyl. We have so much to talk about. It here. is. It is. In all, it, they're cutting all drugs with it, not only heroin. So it's a major problem. So I'm a bit pessimistic. <laughs> I have to say, <laughs> I'm hoping that uh, we could turn the corner on this in, let's say, three years. It's start to come down. Right now, it's still heading up. And the recent CDC statistics said 20 percent over 2016 for 2017. Well, there's a lot more discussion to be had, a lot more education to be done, a lot more action to be taken. Susan, doctor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us and thank you for the attention you're focusing on this. Yes, thank you very much for keeping the conversation going. So there was a lot of news this week like there is every week. But a small bit of important news for me and the show was, as I mentioned at the outset, that I have the second ever live show coming up at the Apollo Theater. 
But I want to explain why I'm excited about it personally, because it's my guest, Dr. Bassam Yusuf, that is inspiring me. Let me tell you a couple of things about Dr. Bassam Yusuf. He was an accomplished cardiothoracic surgeon in Egypt. During the 2011 revolution, Bassam was helping injured protesters in Tahrir Square. He was surrounded by people who, as he once described, were asking for freedom, calling for freedom, protesting, singing, chanting, calling for the removal of the regime, plain and simple. And yet when he returned home at the end of a long day of helping the protesters, he looked at Egyptian television, and he saw how the media was skewing coverage of what was happening, propagating lies, and saying all sorts of things that he did not think were right. And the disparity between the truth and what he was seeing reported bothered him a great deal, this cardiothoracic surgeon. And he thought to himself, you know, how can there be justice if people weren't aware of what was actually happening in their own country? So he did a crazy thing. Here's what he did. He started to record his own commentary on the revolution, often with a very significant element of satire in his own laundry room. And he began uploading them to YouTube as three or four minute long videos. And he called it in Arabic, the show. And, you know, he thought maybe it would get a couple thousand views because who needs comedy? from a cardiothoracic surgeon. A few months later, Bassam had 5 million viewers. People, he realized, were responding so eagerly to his interpretation of events unfolding that his use of humor helped to make sense of the uneasy cultural shift occurring, not just in Egypt, but across the Arab Spring. And he was impressively not afraid to gently tease people in power or to call out hypocrisy He celebrated the will of the people and spoke openly in Egypt at that fraught time about the challenges of a developing democracy. The show, literally the show, became so popular that Bassam made the transition from surgeon to internet sensation to TV network star and became known over time as literally the John Stewart of Egypt, who happens to be one of Bassam's idols and actually the model for his show in Egypt. So you might be guessing how this ends. It didn't end so well for Bassam in Egypt. His political jabs did not sit very well with the government, and sometimes even the people he was speaking about. He was accused of insulting sitting presidents, including Islam, insulting Egypt. He faced threats. Ultimately, he was arrested, detained, interrogated, simply for telling jokes on television. His show was banned. He was fined a lot of money, and ultimately... He was forced to leave Egypt in exile. And where does he live now? In the great United States of America, pursuing a career in comedy, still calling out BS when he sees it. His story, Bassam's story, is one of courage and fearlessness. And it's an important story for our time, especially now. And it's a reminder that freedom of expression and freedom of speech can never be taken for granted. Bassam Yusuf is my guest at the Apollo on April 26th. I hope to see you there. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Susan Salamone and Dr. Abigail Heron. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara. Give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or send me an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. 
Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.